I have with me today a young woman who uh, I am so excited for you to meet because who isn't interested in what happens at a crime scene? Everybody wants to be CSI. Everybody watches endless hours of television. And I have a real live crime scene investigator that I want all of you to get to know. Hadley Mikovic, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's get right into it. Um, how did you become a crime scene investigator? Well, so both of my parents are actually attorneys and growing up, I was like, yeah, don't really want to do that. And I initially started off thinking that I wanted to do canine, um, you know, doing police officer work and stuff like that. And I found out fairly quickly that I don't have a lot of patience for people. So I really admire police officers and their ability to just handle multiple situations, multiple personality types. I kind of quickly figured that really wasn't my forte, but I still wanted to do something in the criminal justice field. And when I was much younger, before I got to college, I did a science program and it was through Doan University, which I actually ended up attending later in life. And it was for women in science. And so it was like a week long thing and they presented all kinds of careers that you could have in the scientific world. And crime scene was one of them. And, you know, I was in seventh grade. I probably wasn't supposed to be watching crime scene shows, but um, I remember thinking like, wait, that's an actual thing. You can actually do that as a career. And so later when I was kind of you know, evaluating my personality, evaluating really what I was good at and trying to find something that would fit those things, crime scene came up and I very quickly got a passion for it when I started taking those college courses and the rest is history. So I'm going to guess that, uh, you know, your friends that aren't involved in uh, the law enforcement profession um, are, they've got to be asking you things like, you know, isn't it gross or isn't it, you know, or, or, and, and also we'll talk more about this. I think there's also a lot of people who think we can do things that we can't when it comes to crime scene. So let's address some of those. So let's talk about the, the ick factor. First of all, what's the ick factor in being a crime scene investigator? A huge ick factor a huge ick factor, uh, things that you would have never really thought, you know, about, uh, encountering. Definitely. I've had decomposition bloop on my head at a crime scene, uncovered head. Don't do that. By the way, I started wearing hats after that. Um, <laughs> you learn very quickly, but it can be anything. It can be anything from, you know, uh, a home that has had no heat and air conditioning, and maybe it's, a hoarder situation, animal abuse situation. So maybe there's, you know, feces everywhere and, and that smell is obviously going to get to you. It can be cigarette smoke. It can be people who have maybe been there for six weeks and you find them in the middle of summer in an air conditioned building. Um, and then it can also just be other things, just uh, cars, you know, that you have to spend hours in that have never been cleaned ever. And so you're just, you know, oh, I don't want to, I don't, but you do get over it fairly quickly. You know, you, 
there is kind of that ability to sort of compartmentalize. PPE is obviously a huge factor, especially when you consider things like DNA transfer and all of those other issues that you can come across into a scene. So there are ways obviously to protect yourself, wear your gloves. Uh, it always kind of boggles my mind when I see old crime scene photos and I'll see people, you know, investigators standing around and they'll have their you know, hand almost in a wound to like, and you know, it's covered in blood and I'm just like, where are your gloves? Uh, but that really wasn't a big thing back then. So we've made huge advancements with just personal protective equipment alone and, you know, making sure that there's not cross-contamination at scenes uh, just within the last 30 years. So that does help with the ick factor. Um, <laughs> Now, when you talk about advancements, um, you know, when I started in the very early 1980s, really crime scene investigation, unless it was a homicide, consisted of a patrol officer like me with a little fingerprint kit that literally had a brush and some dust and some tape. And, and, and that was kind of it. And we have made, I mean, huge strides in my career as a police officer, huge strides in your lifetime and, uh, but there's still, you know, there's things that we can and cannot do. Now, I want to ask you, so on TV, the crime scene investigator goes in and uh, does their investigation. And then, you know, in about 30 minutes, they have all the results they need. So talk to me about that. Oh, can I just say how much I wish that could actually happen? That'd be so nice. My workload would be so much easier, as would our investigators. Um, no, you know, there's a lot of things that factor into what we can and cannot do. And also just the length of time that it takes to do something. So DNA, for example, back in the eighties, depending on where you were in the country, your lab, your local crime lab might've only been able to do something like blood typing with blood evidence. They couldn't mm -hmm. have given you DNA gender, um, you know, comparative, unless you had somebody specifically to compare it to, you know, there wasn't really a database even until I think either early to mid 1990s that actually was a database that you could submit samples to and you had to have quite a bit of sample. And now advancements have gotten to the point where you don't need that much. However, only certain people are really truly qualified to do those comparisons. I'm certainly not qualified. I can collect things and I can make sure they're properly stored and packaged and I can maintain that chain of custody, sending it to a lab for it to be worked on. However, you know, crime labs are kind of at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to government budgets. So sometimes they don't pay especially well, but they require very advanced degrees. And not to say that that's not a possibility for people, you know, um, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily hard. It's hard work to get those degrees. I wouldn't mm -hmm. ever want to discourage somebody from going for a chemistry or a biology degree, but it takes a lot of time. And sometimes a lot of student loans, people need to pay off those loans so they can't afford to take those jobs. If you don't have enough people doing those jobs, the backlog increases and increases and increases. So the technology has gotten a lot better um, as far as time to actually analyze and compare that sample and get a result. However, if you live in a very large city with a lot of crime, there's going to be a lot of samples that are submitted to the lab and certain cases are going to be high priority. So that case is going to come in. Yours is going to get bumped down the list. So unless we have more people 
who are able to actually analyze those samples, it's going to take a lot of time. So the, uh, you know, identification immediately when you upload something within two minutes, it's, it's not real. Um, oh gosh, I wish it was. It can take me a couple of hours to compare and identify a fingerprint because I have to go through several systems. I have to make absolutely sure this is somebody's life we're talking about. This is somebody's reputation. This is, you, you know, again, somebody's life. Regardless of, of what was done, I'm, I'm not trying to minimize that in any way, but it is just as important to make sure you are absolutely identifying the right person. Um, oh, for sure. You know, as it is to, to be respectful to a victim. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and I want to ask you when we're talking about DNA evidence, um, how important have products like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, how important have they um, become to our efforts to find somebody to match up this DNA that we've taken out of a crime scene? Oh, so it's, it's just almost mind boggling because really that when, when you really think about it, that application has always been there, but really the technology wasn't as good to really make sure that you could get samples from very old evidence. So in, in way of cold cases, in way of um, identifying unidentified victims, which happens way more than one would ever hope to think, um, identifying suspects where you when you really have nothing except for maybe the sample and uh, maybe they've never committed a crime that would get them into a database or maybe they have committed a crime but they haven't you know been convicted of it so usually to end up in a database like that you have to have committed a crime that would at least in Iowa you know you have certain standards I suppose mm -hmm. that you have to meet in your criminal enterprises to, to meet that standard, to have a swab taken, to have your DNA on file in CODIS in the Iowa database, which is where I'm at. And if they haven't ever gotten to that point uh, where there's been a conviction or they've met that standard, you could submit their sample and it might come back to other, you know, un, uh, other matches that are unknown in the system, mm -hmm. but there's not a person attached to it. So when it comes to the genealogy aspect of it, it's kind of a way around that. It takes a lot longer. Again, it's very important to be thorough, to make sure that you are not, again, ruining somebody's life, subjecting them to something that might not be true, not getting ahead of yourself, but it's another avenue entirely. So the whole thing is completely fascinating. It, there are privacy issues that kind of come into play, I think, with those that I think will affect it in the long term, you know, some people when they're submitting that stuff, they're not necessarily. I mean, I don't always read the fine print on those kinds of things either. So, uh, you don't necessarily know what you're agreeing to. Uh, I know that some of those databases, those uh, you know, those companies have an option now that you can click, like you agree to to have their to have your uh, DNA sample available to law enforcement right. uh, or, you know, for them to view it. Now, if you, if you don't choose that, the company can say, Hey, you know, we do have a genealogy, like, um, you know, a genealogy lead, if you mm -hmm. will, 
but that person hasn't given us permission. Uh, And so then the company could contact them and say, Hey, can we have your permission? Like something's come up and then they can kind of decide for themselves. If they say no, though, that's another roadblock and you have to figure that out. Well, and I think that courts, uh, you know, as this, as technology changes and, and science changes, I think we're going to see more and more of that in the courts, you know, deciding, you know, like you said, what's private, what's not, what we can get through these, you know, various services that most people just do for fun or entertainment or to find more about, you know, their, their ancestors and, and all of that. And you bring up a really good point. Um, And I, and again, I don't think people are really aware of this. So you're attached to a law enforcement organization as are most crime scene investigators, but there's also additional regulations or accreditation, if you will, that um, is attached to your profession. And I, I want you to talk about that both on the state level and then on an international level, because again, and you emphasize this, and I like that, that that what you do um, affects someone's life. And, you know, American law enforcement knows this as well. When we're arresting somebody or charging somebody with a crime, you know, this is, these people are innocent until we prove them guilty. And so we want to make sure that the evidence that we're presenting and utilizing for this investigation is absolutely accurate. So let's talk about some of the the regulations and, and the association Um, that helps regulate people like you? Yeah. Um, Most law enforcement agencies will go through an accreditation process at some point. Uh, The one that comes up up, like to the top of my head would be CALEA. And I know that's a big one. And there, I'm sure there are others. And usually if you have a crime scene unit or a lab as part of your law enforcement agency, part of that accreditation requirement is to be certified in certain levels of crime scene. So for certification, most agencies will go through the International Association of Identification, and there are several levels. There's, you know, basic crime scene, there's advanced crime scene analyst, um, they have latent examiners, I think ballistic examiners, tire footwear impression examiners, all kinds of different certifications that are available depending on what your specialty is or what you do for your agency. So you will have to usually work in the field for at least a year. You'll have to have so many hours of training that's approved by the IAI, as we call it. Um, usually they're they're just through forensic training companies and there are several out there and they all have really great classes. And usually even just one class is going to be 40 hours. So you take one class and you've got your training requirements done. You take a very long test <laughs> proctored by somebody and then you either get your Uh, you get your answer and then you get a wonderful piece of paper that you can frame that says you are certified. It's great for court, obviously, as well. So there are several other benefits. You get access to all kinds of training and procedures. You know, new things are happening all the time in forensics. So, I mean, when I think about the how you know, technology has just advanced in 30 years, imagine what it's going to be like in 30 more. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have access to that information by being a member of the International Association of Identification, being certified. And one of the other benefits that they have is they have 
especially in the U.S., they have divisions, so state divisions. I am the vice president of our Iowa division of the International Association of Identification, so the Iowa IAI. <laughs> and we do, you know, like basic crime scene processing, advanced crime scene processing classes. We get information out to our members saying, you know, interesting articles, ways to do things, uh, certain procedures that you should be following, best practices, et cetera. And then we also have our annual training educational conference that is held every November this year. It's November 15th through the 17th in Ankeny, Iowa. And it's going to be a variety of different things. Like this year we have forensic anthropology for beginners, ancient remain discoveries, environmental deaths, case studies, stage death um, investigation, which is always a terrifying situation. So the more training you have on something like that, the better. Uh, digital evidence, daytime laser photography, tons of case studies all from all over the U.S. and even from Canada this year as well. So it's a variety and every single state has something like that. So if you are a law enforcement officer and it's for sworn and civilian, like uh, anybody who has any sort of part in the crime scene processing uh, area, I think should really consider being a member of either the international parent body or the, their state division, because it's just a fantastic resource and it's usually very cost effective as well. So. Well, and it sounds like a great way to keep up with your training because again, oh, yeah. you, you um, absolutely have to, I would imagine every year, um, attend additional training just to keep up with new find, you know, new things in the profession, right? Yeah. You usually have to recertify, I think every five years or so. And so again, you have to have that 40 hours of training. You have to have condition, like continuing education as a condition of your active membership. And so that's a really good way to get those things. It's also a fantastic way to get training to agencies that maybe don't have the budget that bigger agencies do. So mm -hmm. a, a very large uh, law enforcement agency is going to have a huge training for budgets, a right. smaller rural one, not so much. So uh, they can't necessarily afford to send their people to, to Florida, to Nevada, to, you know, then I just name those two because those are where a lot of trainings I, I see happen. Uh, they can't afford that. So being able to go somewhere in their state for only a few days, be able to take a lot of information back to their agencies is, is a huge benefit, especially in this day and age of COVID where some agencies won't even let you travel that far. So. Right, right. If someone's interested in being a crime scene investigator, and I have talked to hundreds of young people who are interested in it when I've gone to different recruiting events and things like that, everyone's interested in it. What do you recommend young people do to prepare themselves um, for a possible career in crime scene? So along with an education, usually you have to get at least a bachelor's degree. I would recommend if, if your school has a forensic science degree program, going through that, but also doing maybe a hard science like chemistry or biology only because you have more job opportunities available to you mm. as opposed to if you just go for criminal justice or forensic science. Uh, getting interns, uh, or I'm sorry, internships in right. that field 
because there's nothing worse than paying all that money to go to school to find out that you can't, you can't do it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's absolutely Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with it, you know, but I would definitely recommend kind of getting your feet wet early and then also be prepared to move. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of young people that come to me too, that say, you know, I want to do crime scene, but I don't want to leave the area. And I shrug and say, you know, these jobs, they're very competitive. They are Mm -hmm. few and far between. It can take a lot to get into it. So maybe starting off in a law enforcement agency, even as something like a records technician, I started off as a background records technician 10 years ago, I worked my way up to crime scene uh, and I had to move agencies. I had to move states. So it, it is something that you do have to consider as, as well. You also have to consider that you will probably be shift work. You will be working holidays. Mm-hmm. You will be working weekends. You will be called out in the middle of the night um, more times than you want to ever admit um, right. or go to. So this is not a job for everybody. There's nothing wrong with that. You can still have a career in forensics. It might not be crime scene, but you can still contribute to the criminal court case process with another area of forensics. It's just as important. It's just right. as necessary. Right. So, and just as interesting, I think. So. Yeah. Where can, quickly, where can people find out more about the association and how can they get in touch with you? So they can go to... Uh, they can Google uh, International Association of Identification or www.iai.org. They can go to, if they are in Iowa or interested in attending our Iowa conference, www.iowaiai.org. Um, you can also email me if you want as well, h-m-i-k-o-v-e-c at sheriff.pottcounty-ia.gov. Ellie, thank you so much for spending time with us today and enlightening everybody about CSI. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Ma'am, put the gun down! Put the gun down! Last year, Law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.